As we come to Job 38, there's just a couple, a couple of um, weeks left, two Sundays left in the book of Job, uh, chapters 38 through 41 today, and then we'll finish chapter 42 next week, the, the restoration. But let's just pull it together, let's recap just briefly. In chapters 1 and 2, we have this grand heavenly scene, and we get to see what's really going on. We get the behind-the-curtain look, and there we one of the things that surprises us is not the angelic assembly, and even, the, even Satan is called accountable before God, but there in the midst of heaven, what ought to surprise us is that God brags on one of us. God boasts in heaven about his servant Job. And Satan says, oh yeah? And he challenges the notion. And in doing so, he challenges God's way of running his universe, how God interacts with humanity. He, he challenges God's practice of blessing his own. And he says, you know, Job really serves you. He only serves you because you bless him. And if you let me pull that away, then he would curse you to your face. And God allows him to do that. God gives him some rope. And he does terrible things in Job's life that we read about, and yet Satan is wrong. Job does not curse God to his face. He is upright and blameless. He does fear God. He turns away from evil. But then in chapters 3 through 27, Job's friends come along, and Job's friends are offering comfort and explanations. And they're encouraging Job, Job, these bad things have happened because of something with you. If you would only confess your hidden sin, then everything would turn out right again. Job's friends are wrong. Because as God has said, Job is upright and blameless. He fears God. He turns away from evil. But he questions God now. He's beginning to challenge. God, what are you doing? This can't be right. He is not cursing God. But he is questioning God. And he in some ways, not that we would ever do this, but he in some ways is putting his wisdom and judgment about the situation over against God's judgment an evaluation of the situation. And then we come to verse 28 or chapter 28 where there's a wisdom psalm, a wisdom hymn that seems to cut off the three friends, we're done with them, we don't want to hear any more from them. And real wisdom is defined here. It's defined as well it sounds a lot like what God said about Job. Wisdom, skill in living, living rightly before God in the midst of a broken world means to fear God, to trust God as God, and to turn away from evil. And then we were introduced to Elihu, Job's much younger friend, who turns the conversation. He turns the conversation away from this idea of fairness. Things should be right. If I've been good, I should get good. This retribution principle. He turns away from that. He turns the focus away from Job and maybe what Job has done or not done. He gets Job's eyes off himself and he redirects toward who God is. And really the message of the book is it's not about what's happening, it's about who. It's not about what being right or wrong, it's about who can I trust in the midst of what is wrong. And so Elihu is good in the fact that he reminds Job that, Job, you forget that God is God and you are not. You forget that you also are a man who is in need of God's mercy. And God is merciful. He will restore. You need to trust God because we are not yet at the end of the story. 
And so that presses us a little closer to the end of the story. And this is the moment that Job and you have been waiting for. This is it. This is in some ways almost the pinnacle of the book. What Job has been asking for all along, only if I could get a sit-down with God. Well, it's going to be a stand-up. If only I could get a chance where I could see, I could face God face-to-face, and I could stand before God like a man, and I could make my case before Him. Then God would see that I'm right, and He should change this. Well, Job's going to get his chance to stand up to God like a man. But there is the problem, isn't it? To stand up to God as a mere man. We don't quite get what that really means. What we're actually asking for. But Job does get what he is asking for. And God has been so patient with him that God himself will actually now entertain his objections. And God will say, okay, well, let me hear from you. Okay, go ahead, make your case. God is going to say, Job, do you think you know more than God does? Then go ahead, make your case, answer me like a man. Turn to Job chapter 38. And we're going to pick and choose a few of the verses along the way to try to capture the whole of these four chapters. In the first two, Do you know more than God does? As the Lord says to Job in 38 verse 1, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. As if Job had something he could make known to God. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? Or on what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Now, God is doing something very subtle there. But he has reintroduced that earlier chapter 1 and 2 scene back into our awareness. He subtly reminded Job, without pointing it out, there's something bigger here, Job, than you are aware of. You haven't been there when the sons of God shouted for joy at creation. You were not there when the sons of God came together and the adversary Satan was there as well and he made his accusations against God and against Job. He goes on, do you comprehend the working of the earth and the day sky, the atmosphere that you see? Do you understand the workings of the the universe that you can see, the stars and the constellations at night? So let me just scan through a couple of these paragraphs. Do you know who shut in the sea with its doors? Verse 8. Verse 12, have you commanded the morning since your days begun? Verse 16, have you entered the springs of the sea? Have you walked in the recesses of the depth? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of snow? Verse 25, do you direct the way of the thunderbolt? Do you bring the rain? Verse 31, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? 
I'm not sure I said that right. Or loose the cords of Orion. Can you lead forth the constellation in their season or guide the, the bear with its children? Another constellation. Do you know the ordinances of the heaven? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Even those things you see in the night sky, those constellations that astrologers would look at and study and, and think that these indicate and, and foreshadow things that are going to happen on earth. Okay, you watch the stars and you can interpret them, let's say, but do you control them? Who's steering the stars, if I may, in order to send those messages that you then interpret? You see how God is taking it up a level beyond Job's reach. Now, people watch the stars they come up with a horoscope. They come with a prediction about a future. Or sometimes particular stars are portend a particular event. We have seen his star in the east and we've come to worship him. Okay? But do people complain against the stars? And yet Job would complain against God who controls them. He says, do you comprehend or care for? Do you control the various creatures of the earth? From the end of chapter 38 on into chapter 39, let me just run down the list, and there's something else that God is doing here. Do you hunt the prey of the lion in 38 and verse 39? Do you provide for the raven? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Now, we know more about mountain goats today probably than Job did. You know, we've had scientists study those mountain goats, and we know how long it takes from when mama, mama goat and daddy goat got together and a baby goat was initially formed and there's a gestation period, and we could predict probably about when that little baby goat's going to come popping out. But were you there? Up in the hills in the middle of the night when mama goat went into delivery? God is the one who is able to put that time of birth on baby goat's birth certificate. God knows more than we do, as educated as we are. Who let the wild donkeys go free? Is the wild ox willing to serve you? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, and yet it is quite selfish and foolish. It doesn't even care for its own young, and yet nobody can catch it. Verse 19, do you give the horse his might? And this is a war horse. Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leak like the locust? Verse 24, the fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, aha, he smells the battle from afar and the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Or perhaps your understanding is, is that, that, that the hawk soars and spread his wings toward the south. Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? He goes down this whole list of creation from lions to wild donkeys to wild ox and ostrich and warhorse and eagle and hawk and all of these things. Do you comprehend and care for and control any of these? How about all of these, Job? No, Job does not and we do not. And yet there's more to it than that. I think, I think in the poetry of the chapter, there's more that's happening here in the suggestion in that the why, there's something about our expectation that we could tell God how things should be. That we would dare to suggest, God, this is what you should do. That we are 
dancing around the edges of idolatry there. That we are fashioning a God who will be the kind of God that we expect God to be. For instance, a wild ox is strong. It could be useful if only we could tame it and harness it to the plow because this wild ox this is bigger and stronger than your typical domesticated beast. Is God like that? He's strong and could be useful if only we could harness him to our will. The ostrich is strong and fast and yet foolish and selfish. Do you think of God like an ostrich? That he's more self-centered than caring about even his own little ones. The war horse is fearsome and strong and imposing force in battle. It has its own mind and passion, and yet it can be directed by man for his purpose. Do you think of God like a war horse? Do we think of God as one who has our bit in his mouth and whose reins we hold to steer in the directions of what we would have God to do? That's what poetically God is asking of Job. Is God like the eagle, distant, aloof, watching and swooping down here and there just to serve his own purposes? You see, in Job demanding what God should have done instead or what God should not allow, Job is in fact on the edges of fashioning God in his own desires, in his own image, so to speak. What, what do I think of God as? Well, God reveals himself. God has some images for us to think about himself. God describes himself as Lord. God describes himself as the absolute sovereign, as the king of kings. And yet, we in America, we don't care much for monarchs. We don't care much for one with absolute authority, do we? We expect for everything to be up for a vote. And that has a dangerous way of intruding on how we think about God. We still want a vote. God describes himself as father, and yet in our culture, men too easily withdraw. And men and fathers are minimized in all kinds of ways within our culture. And we imagine perhaps God to be more on the fringes and less involved as well. And really it's the other way around, and he is our model for men and fathers. When God himself stepped into humanity, God tra translated into humanity is described this way. The Word, the very expression of God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. You want to know what God is like? He is not determined according to our desires or imaginations. God is determined. God has revealed himself to us in his Word. It's in his word that we will learn this is who God is. This is what God is like. This is what brings God delight. This is what ticks him off. God, God tells us we don't imagine how that ought to be for God. God wants us to know him. And we do that by getting into his story. We do that by getting into his word. What does this show me of God? What does God clearly and explicitly, like in the, in the epistles, what does he, in, the, in, the, in, the, in Paul's letters, for instance, what does he specifically tell us about himself and how we respond? That's where we know him, not according to what our thinking about what God ought to be, 
Now, if you and I don't comprehend or control the creation, that which we can see and know, will we be able to question how God runs His creation, that which He made, that which He does control? In Job chapter 40, the Lord then, after saying, describing these things, He says to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. You see, Job's going through a hard time. Job's just venting a little bit. But our venting, our grumbling, our complaining about how things are can also be arguing with God. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What Shall I answer? We could translate that. What could I say? What could I possibly say to God? No, I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer further. I have spoken twice. I will proceed no more. Job says, no, I was wrong to speak. I'll stop speaking. That's a good start. But Job's not there yet. We're going to see there's something more that needs to come from Job. There's something more that God is still going to poke at him a little bit because there's something more that he wants to surface out. So let's work on it. In verse 6 then of chapter 40, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, here we go again, round two, same song, second verse, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. What shall Job explain to God? I kind of think of some of my prayers. If I just lay it out to God, if I just explain to God how things are and how this could work, and if, if this happened, then that would be the wonderful thing that we really need. If, as I carefully explain this all out to God, now God knows what to do. <sighs> no, I don't really need to make it known to God, but God delights to hear his children. I was quite interested to hear the young one and he's Rochelle and Landon's responsibility, not mine. But, but for him to describe, um, you know, a whole army of men, they could take on a hippo. Okay, well, that really wasn't the point at all. But I, it's still fun to hear. And oh, more than that, we are, we are God's own. He delight, don't, I, I don't want to intimidate you in your prayers. Vent your heart to God in prayer. He can take it. But at the same time, be careful. Be careful that we don't presume to explain things to God as if he really didn't get it. I will question you and you make it known to me. Verse 8, here's, here's the warning. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me so that you may be right? If I challenge what God is doing on the basis of what I presume would be right, uh, I am right and God is wrong. Let's go to the Old Testament. Creation. Okay, God created the whole world somehow, but there's a lot of stuff that seems really, 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 really old. It seems to be older than the Bible says. Probably couldn't have been happened in seven days. It must have been bigger than that, and I just can't buy the seven days thing. Well, it says seven days in, in such a way that... I don't think the point of Genesis 1 and 2 is to prove that God created the earth in seven days. I think Genesis 1 and 2 take that for granted. And the words just describe literal seven days. And if I'm too smart to accept that, maybe there's a problem with me. 
Oh, this whole notion of a flood? You know, a whole worldwide flood? In all, would, would God allow all of those people to die? That seems really harsh. Maybe it was just like a really heavy rainstorm. Maybe it was just a kind of a more of a localized flood. Maybe that I could handle. Or maybe I get to some of those conquest and battle scenes in the Old Testament where this battle is happening and all of these people get wiped out. And that doesn't seem just to me. And so... I'm not really sure that really happened, or God didn't tell them to do that really. The, 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 the history's not quite right in that part of the Old Testament. We, we, can, we can come to some of these kind of conclusions that in our mind set ups right according to our own standards, and God then is wrong. And what that does is it leaves us with no foundation to stand on as we keep going through God's Word. Because everything that seems a little different than our understanding of what's happening around us, we lean toward our understanding instead of what God says. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me so that you may be in the right? God answers that in Romans where he says, But God be found true, though every man be found a liar. God is right. And what he's reminding Job here is, Job, you can trust me. Job, I've got this. I've got this beyond what you can even imagine. For example... For example, let's take the biggest of the land beasts. And I think the, I think the behemoth, as described in verse 15 and following, I think it's a hippo. Now there's one piece of that, the, the having a trail, a tail like a cedar tree. He's got a really big, thick, stout tail. That doesn't sound like a hippo. Hippo's got a stubby little tail. It doesn't quite fit. Well... I don't want to go into all the details, but sometimes Hebrew can be a very colorful language, and I think that what the, what the poetry is saying is this is a male hippo, and this is a big, massive beast of a male hippo, and I'm not going to say any more than that. <laughs> but Hebrew does that. And... and, and, and God is describing in Hebrew poetry, this is a really big dude, and you can't tame him. You can't even start. And then he goes on from there. And if you cannot contain the greatest of these beasts of the earth, and that is not to say, and if you want to go with a dinosaur there instead, that's fine. The point is the same. If you cannot contain the greatest of the beasts of the earth, then what are you going to do with Leviathan? That comes in 41. What are we going to do with Leviathan? What kind of beast is this? Wow. Well, as we read the description... He's, again, a big dude. Can you put a rope in his nose? Can you pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he, will, will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you with soft words? Will he make a covenant with you that he would be your servant forever? No, I don't think that's going to happen. Will you play with him like a bird, you know, kind of keep him like a pest? You can put him on a leash for your girls? No, I don't think that's going to happen. You're not going to bargain and trade with him. Well, what is this beast? Oh, verse 12 goes on now to give a physical description. Again, some people want to think dinosaur, okay, Tyrannosaurus rex. 
But he's a bit of a sea creature, it seems like. Maybe he's Loch Ness Monster. Maybe this is the Kraken. To some extent, maybe this is a reference to these, these ancient Near East, great chaotic beasts that you find described in the various pagan myths. But just like those various cultures all have a myth story about the flood also. That those ancient myths often relate to that which is actually true, but they're just nibbling around the edges. They've had little glimpses of it here and there. They know that there's a flood, but they don't have the story right. They know things were created, but the creation story gets all weird. And so in God's word, what God is doing is saying basically, as Jesus says, you have heard it said, but now I say to you, this is how creation happened. God didn't work this and that and take this and that and create them into this. No, God spoke and everything came out of nothing. And, and the flood, this is how it happened. And even Leviathan, what is Leviathan? This, this otherworldly or beyond this worldly creature. I think it's a dragon. Let me show you why. Look at verse 18. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. Now, there's lots of other bits in the description that if we were going to pair this with the hippo, you'd say, that's ah, a crocodile, except for the fire-breathing part. And that's not just a casual reference. That's line after line after line in the poem. There's something to that. Now, in the Greek version of the Old Testament that was used during the day of Jesus, the word Leviathan in Hebrew is translated dracon. It's the same word that's in Revelation 12 and 13. And 20, when that great dragon who's manifested as a seven-headed beast, oh, Psalm 74 has Leviathan also as a multi-headed beast. And this dragon, this serpent of old in Revelation, I think is the same dragon that's mentioned here. What is God saying to Job? He's pulling the curtain back just a little. He's not explaining, Job, Job, this is all that's been going on. But he's telling Job, if you can't even tame a hippo, what would you do with the real adversary who is going to roast you and destroy you? You can do nothing against him. But God can. God's got mountain goats, God's got eagles, God's got lions, God's got the wild ox, God's got hippos, God's got the dragon. We don't need to fear them, we need to fear him. That's the point. Jesus, in his humanity, does defeat the dragon, that great serpent of old. This greatest of enemies. And he does it not by overpowering him. Do you know how Jesus does it? But by yielding to the will of his Father. Nevertheless, not my will, Jesus says, but thy will be done. By trusting himself into the hands of God who judges justly. 
That's how Jesus defeats the enemy who thought there at the cross he had won the victory. But Jesus in his submission, even unto death to the Father, to the Father's will instead of his own, he defeats the enemy. And by doing so, he also shows us how we can win the same victory. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. It's a little longer, but we have time. Verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all, in every respect, not only to the good and gentle and those who are kind and those who you know, take you to lunch and talk softly, but also to the unjust, the unfair. They don't treat you well. They mock your faith. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, when with our eyes on God as God, fearing Him, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. What credit is to you when you sin and suffer for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in His steps. Jesus knows what it is to suffer unjustly. Jesus knows what it is to trust his Father when it doesn't seem right or fair. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And there he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. We also win the victory against this great adversary of our souls when we yield our will to God's will. When we, in fear of God as God, confess that, yes, you are God and I am not, I must trust myself to you. That's what Job says. Oh, one more line about, about Leviathan that I forget. At the end of chapter 41, Oh, we'll throw in a line about the Loch Ness Monster here just to include that. Verse 32, behind him he leaves a shining wake. One would think the, the deep to be white-haired. He stirs up the waters. Well, the beast in Revelation comes up out of the waters. On earth there is not his like. He is not earthly. A creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Job is not able to bring down all the proud, but God is even this greatest, this king of the sons of pride, the devil himself. And, the, and Job's answer in chapter 42 in the first six verses is this. I know, Lord, that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And now he, he quotes God's Challenge to him in chapter 38. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge, you asked? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. I confess it was me. I am the one who hid counsel without knowledge. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. And then he quotes God again from chapter 40. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me, you said. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, 
But now my eyes see you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He is not merely saying, in view of who you are, I don't have anything to say. Job is saying, I have been out of line. I have been asserting my will over your will. I have been suggesting that I know better than God, that I could choose better for me than God would choose for me. That's what Job himself was saying. And that's what he is now repenting of. Job confesses a fear of God and turns away from his self-focused complaint. I do not know what God knows. I cannot do what you do. I must trust you. And once again, Satan, the adversary in chapters 1 and 2, has been foiled. Not only has Job not cursed God, but in God's patient dealing with him, he's come to the point of even in the worst that the enemy did to him, Job has come to the point of praising God instead, and fully submitting to him. God, your plans for me are better than my plans for me. Your ways for me are better than my ways for me. I will yield my plans. I will trust you. Not my will, but thy will be done. What do you need to trust God for? What do you need to submit to his will over your will? That's one of our takeaways from Job in this section. We're reminded of how great and big our God is. But that is all for the purpose that we too would trust him instead of ourselves. Where do you need to trust his will instead of your will? Where in choices that I make do I need to trust him and yield in obedience to him. We know more than Job. We see the fuller story than Job saw it. And God has told us as well in the New Testament that through our sufferings, he is producing glory. He's given us all the more reason to trust him. As Peter says, we have the prophetic word made all the more sure. Why will we not hear it? We have been told that our weakness is in fact an opportunity for God's strength and power to be manifest. When I cannot, that's when God does. And he's reminded us that all of heaven looks in and worships as they see this transforming redemption worked out in humanity as as they see watching from heaven in your life. You saying, yes, God, I don't understand it, but I will trust you. Yes, God, I will yield to your way, even if my way seems better to me. But ultimately, we have the example of Jesus, whom we follow, even in his sufferings, so that his resurrection would also be seen in us. We have his example that by yielding to his Father and laying down even his life, there is where victory was won and there is where God was most glorified. Could it be that what seems lost to me would actually be where God will be most glorified and I will be most fulfilled in what glorifies God the most? Do you think at the end of it all, 3,500 or more years later, do you think looking back, Job now would say, nah, I still wish I didn't have those troubles? No, 
He didn't know that when he said, oh, that my words were written in a book, they were. He didn't know that not only would all of heaven be watching in and glorified by his stubborn faith anyway, he didn't know that all through these generations and centuries since, from then up until today, that we would be strengthened and we would be able to listen in on God himself conversing with the man. And we would get a bigger view of our God as a result of it. Man, if what I could do in my life would only matter in those ways even to this generation, to the lives in this room, that would be enough. It really would. And you know what? He tells me in his word that that's exactly what he is doing in every one of us. That's what he is doing in this body together, that what you choose to do in trusting him instead of you will make a difference for the people all around you, your own family, and this family. It will matter. And that's why we must choose. Not my will, but thy will. Not my way that's easier or more indulgent, but your way is best. I will trust you. And this is an ongoing thing. I don't, I don't mean, to, mean to hint that it's not. When we left the Air Force to go into missions, God clearly called us into missions, and we left a lot behind. I look back and I say, how did those kids ever, ever come to that conclusion? How did they do that? They were young and foolish. That must have been it. And we trusted God. We didn't know where our income was going to come from. This was a faith mission. They provided no salary. We didn't know where we were going to live in a, in, in, in a few months' time. And yet God provided for us. And we saw his abundant provision along the way. And we, we had the privilege of being used in the middle of that. And then several years later, in the midst of, of all places, seminary studies... I was on a study leave from the mission, and the plan of returning to Africa changed, and what I was preparing and was going to return to do wasn't um, available any longer, and it was time now to make a choice. Continue on the path, or is God directing us in a new way? And to tell you today, I'm pretty sure God was directing us in a new way, but I was afraid. I'd left a, a, a half of an Air Force career behind to not know how I was going to support our family and where we were going to live, and I wasn't afraid. And yet years later, serving the Lord in the midst of seminary, all of a sudden I'm afraid to trust the Lord. Okay? I tell you that, not so you'll know that Bob's a worm, but I tell you that because this is an ongoing journey for every one of us. We keep going around this circle. Well, God asks us again at another level, will you trust me? And one way or another, along the way, he seems to get us to yes, I will trust you. Oh, it can be harder. It can be easier. And yet, God works even our wrestling with him for good. And here we are today, and he's grown me among a wonderful church family. It's not like I missed the boat because I missed a particular turn. And yet, I can tell you, it is always better to trust His way instead of our way. Let's pray. Father, I do pray, Lord. There, 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 are, many, there are many things that surfaced with our men in, in, in Rock Tumbler. And Lord, they took a step in following you, even in going. There, there were steps taken there in the midst of our groups together. 
things we heard from your word and then unpacked together in those groups, that, Lord, we've made commitments, we, we, we made intentions that we are going to follow where you are leading. Father, would you give us the courage to do that? Would you give us the courage to take those next steps? And, Lord, for the many different things that are being faced, Lord, there's uncertainties, there's anxieties, there are fearful things in our lives. There are weaknesses. There's need for healing. Father, there, there are questions we don't have answers to. There, there are fears that we face. There are struggles that we give into. Lord, there are places where we, it would be easier to choose our own way. It seems comfortable. And your way seems uncertain and unknown. But Lord, give us the confidence, knowing who you are, that we can trust you certainly with ourselves, because you care for your creation better than we could. You care for each one of us better than we ever would. So, Lord, make our hearts soft in your hands, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.